Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture and features Professor Herbert E. Huppert. Herbert Huppert is Emirates Professor of Theoretical Geophysics at the University of Cambridge and the recipient of the Australian Academy of Sciences 2019 Selby Fellowship. He has researched and published extensively across a range of disciplines including applied mathematics, crystal growth, fluid mechanics, geology, geophysics, oceanography, meteorology, and science in general. In particular, his research focuses on carbon dioxide sequestration and applying fluid mechanical principles to the earth sciences. His lecture, recorded on Tuesday the 30th of April, is entitled why scientists and politicians are incompatible. We hope you enjoy this IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture. Uh, great, thanks for coming everybody. Uh, my name is Alan Woodley, I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science and I'm also one of the domain leaders here at the IFE. Uh, so uh, before I begin, let me just pay my respects uh, to the elders for the land on which we uh, stand and pay uh, for the traditional owners and pay my respects to the elders uh, past, current, and emerging. Uh, we're joined today by uh, Herbert Hubert, who comes from us uh, from the University of Cambridge. Uh, he joined that in 1968, and he hasn't left. Very much like it, quite a bit. Um, so uh, we released his bios. I won't go through everything in the bio because it's too extensive. So I'll just go over a few of the uh, key points. And um, most of his research is on carbon sequestration and fluid dynamics, but he has published in uh, multiple uh, areas. Um, he has a H index of 72 and a citation count at over 17,000. Uh, he's a member of the uh, Fellow of the Royal Society, as well as the American Geophysical Union and the American uh, Physical Society. Um, and he joins us today as a, the award of the Australian Academy of Science Shelby Fellowship which uh, brings out distinguished uh, academics to do tours uh, around Australia. So we're very uh, privileged to have him today, and I'd just like uh, everyone to welcome him in a traditional manner. <laughs> Thank you all uh, very much. It's uh, very good to be here. I've never been in a lecture theatre of this geometric uh, shape, uh, so I may not always handle it as best I uh, can. Alan, thank you very much uh, for the introduction. It's very kind, and uh, the organisation for bringing me here. And of course, I want to uh, thank the uh, Selby uh, Foundation and the Australian Academy of Sciences for uh, sponsoring this uh, trip. It's been uh, fun. And from here, I have to show off. I go to Darwin, where I've never been before, and I'm much looking forward uh, to that. Well, today I'd like to tell you a little bit about why, in my opinion, scientists and politicians are uh, incompatible. And I'd like to start with a summary. So those of you who don't really want to come to this lecture, you can stay for two minutes and then go, and you'll have got everything that I uh, have to uh, say. Um, the problem is that scientists and policy makers think in entirely different ways, as I'll show you an outline uh, in the next 50 minutes or so. Uh, and an important aspect is I think it would be enormously beneficial to both groups if they really tried to understand uh, each other's background and way of thinking. But they don't. 
Let me give you a nice example. This is Santorini. Some of you may have been there. Uh, in Greece, there was an incredible eruption about three and a half thousand uh, years ago. 60 kilometers, cubic kilometers of uh, rock was emitted. It was meant to set up a tidal wave that ended the Minoan civilization because they were just uh, inundated. And about three or four years ago, some geological scientists said, there's a 20% chance that it's going to erupt again this summer. The magma underneath is moving, and we'd say about 20% chance. And the politicians would say, what am I meant to do with the 20% chance? Do I cut down 20% of the tourists? Do I shop, stop, rather, shut down 20% of the uh, shops? If he's an English politician or British politician, he thinks, if I tell people to be careful and not to go to Santorini, I might ruin the tourist industry of Santorini. On the other hand, if I don't say anything and there is an eruption, as the geologist said, and 60 cubic kilometers of rock are emitted and uh, all my people are killed, uh, it's going to be terrible. And especially you're going to find out, and we heard some of this recently, that the scientists told me that uh, there was a 20% chance. So. There's already a uh, difference. Now, we personally have to make decisions all the time, but they're rather little decisions. White bread, brown bread, which would be better? Do we take statins? Will that really make us uh, live longer? The evidence is not very clear. And of course, I couldn't resist saying the decision, do you go to QUT or do you go to the University of uh, Queensland? Of course, it's an obvious decision to everybody in this audience, or I hope it, Well, it's an obvious decision to some of you, but it is the sort of thing that we have to decide. On the other hand, politicians have to look into much more complicated and sophisticated and important scientific uh, matters. Should we immunize, we, the country, immunize all children? Should we say that uh, elderly people should be immunized. Remember, more people died because of the flu just after World War I than died due to military action in uh, World War I. So it's clearly an important uh, decision. Submarines, and it's uh, an Australian problem at the moment. Is it worthwhile having submarines? Should one spend a lot of money? on submarines? Should they be nuclear submarines? What sort of weaponry do we want on the submarine? And the politicians have to make that decision. Now, a, uh, another decision, which is, I know, very controversial in Australia, should there be nuclear power? Should, uh, especially in Australia, which has these huge uh, fields of uranium, should there be nuclear power? put into uh, the country. And then I like uh, this. You, of course, recognize this man who kisses babies and can play football extremely well. What relevance that has to do with whether he can govern the country, I've never quite understood. Um, what if he said, you know, I can't head a ball three times in a row. Would that mean he wouldn't be a good prime minister? Anyhow, stop a Danny, and I'll talk a little bit about that at the end. That's the sort of decision, really much more complicated, scientifically more complicated than the ones that we have to uh, make. Another problem is that politicians have learnt their science at school, 
little example, two times three is uh, six. The chance of an unbiased coin showing heads on a single toss is 50%. That's never going to change. They learned it at school and it's absolutely uh, correct. The periodic table, hydrogen, helium, lithium, blah, 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 that's never, never going to uh, change. And that's what they've been brought up with. But now there are questions that we have to think about, such as what effect does it have on their brain development when young kids are using uh, phones all the time? We don't yet know what the answer to uh, uh, that is. There are lots of things that have been introduced recently we just don't know. Scientists will tell you they just don't know. Is there a cure for cancer? This is really a very important uh, problem. If it turns out that the answer is yes, and it could be found with 10 million, 100 million dollars of investment, it would be worthwhile putting money into. If it turns out to be no, unfortunately it's one of those things like death, I guarantee you there's no way of stopping death, then it's not worthwhile. That's a scientific question but one that the politicians have to uh, answer. Should we put money into uh, this? Now, another problem is science is not a democracy. And that really bothers a politician. Democracy, at least for the good politicians, is everything. If a vote is won or lost by one point out in the House, that's enough to decide what uh, goes on. But science is not a democracy. It doesn't matter how many people think something, that doesn't make it uh, true. The whole world thought that the Earth was flat, definitely flat. That didn't make it flat, I assure you. Copernicus said, you know, it's not uh, flat. Some of you, in some sense, if you don't mind my saying, still think the Earth is flat. Now, you smile at me, but let me tell you, how many of you get up in the morning, look out at uh, the ocean, I hope you can do that from some places in Brisbane, and say, what a lovely day. The sun is rising out of the ocean. It's really beautiful. Let me tell you, the sun does not rise out of the ocean. There's absolutely no way that that can happen. On the other hand, how many of you get up and say, isn't this fantastic? While I was asleep, the Earth kept on rotating, and it's now brought my position to face the sun. And some of my cousins who are on the other side of the Earth, they're going to have nightfall. How many of you say that? It's not a democracy. doesn't matter what you think. That's uh, not how it uh, goes. Here's, a, in sense, a summary. The politician says, I want the best answer now. I do things on daily timescales. And the scientist said, gee, that's an interesting question, cancer. Yeah, give me about a million dollars and I'll, I'll hire three postdocs and I'll set up a new area of research and in three years we'll have ten papers and it'll be terrific. Well, <laughs> those are two totally divergent uh, views. And what I'd like to say and what I'll say at the end, as you'll see, is that these two need to understand each other better and uh, come to grips with what uh, goes on. There have been some people who managed to uh, 
sort of go over both sides. Lindemann, the uh, advisor to uh, Churchill, this is uh, Lindemann. Solly Zuckerman, the biologist. Lindemann was a physicist. And I showed this on purpose. This is Bob May, an Australian, who in fact taught me physics when I was 17 years old or something like that. Um, and he was the chief scientific advisor to uh, the government, was made a lord. All of these three were lords. Bob, unfortunately, is now demented, uh, living in the Oxford home. But uh, they do play a role and have managed to uh, come uh, across. Uh, this is uh, Walter Perry. Um, he was the first vice chancellor of the Open University, this free university that uh, uh, in Britain. Um, and he was also made a, a peer, the Lord uh, uh, Perry. Most people called him the Lord Sherry because he was very interested in drinking. Um, but he said to me once, you know, everybody in the Lords, every one of them, has said to me they've read Ovid in the original. I don't believe a word of it, but they all say it. And everyone in the Lords who make decisions say they know nothing about science and they don't care that they know nothing about science, about which he was really very upset. And clearly that's not uh, good at all. Now, let's look at some things which show again the difficulties. These are the plate boundaries, as I'm sure you know, the Earth is evolving. After all, it's uh, four and a half billion years old, a little older even than me. Um, and uh, it's changing its structure all the time. This is what it looks like at uh, the moment. And there are earthquakes at these so-called plate boundaries. I guarantee you there will be some earthquakes uh, along here. San Francisco is definitely going to have an earthquake. Australia, if it has one, it's so-called interplate earthquakes, and they're rather small. There was one of 5.6 magnitude, but this is going to be a magnitude 9 or something like that. When? No idea. Scientists hasn't any idea. And the politician says, what's the use of that? It could be while I'm talking, not due to my talking, I hope, but while I'm talking, an earthquake goes off. But when? No idea. This is a, another example which I find fascinating, the Soufriere Hills on uh, Montserrat. Uh, there was an eruption in 1995, and I could give a whole lecture on this, but don't worry, I uh, won't. But the thing that's interesting here is that the governor of Montserrat in about 1990 knew that there had been eruptions of the Soufriere Hills in the past. And so he had a report written by a geologist, a friend of mine, Jeff Wodge, very, very capable guy, wrote, I'm sure, a wonderful report. I've not uh, seen it. It was said never, never even to have been opened. It just sat in the governor's uh, um, filing cabinet, uh, even though he'd asked for it. And then there was an eruption in 1995. So they weren't prepared at all. A lot of people lost their homes, and there were some really super-duper homes here, wealthy homes, and insurance companies, not being stupid, said, no, 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 it was an act of God. That's not insured for, and hence you don't get any money. So all these people lost uh, money, having built their house on a previous uh, lava flow. So it was quite clear it was going to happen, but when? Who knows? 
Here's Vesuvius, which we all uh, know about, which erupted during World War II and erupted during the time of Pliny the Younger uh, and Elder. That's what killed uh, Pliny the Older. Um, and Fuji, which looks really exactly the same, and it's last erupted in 1707. What process controls the time scale? When are these things going to erupt? We have no idea, no idea whatsoever. And I, in fact, stole this, uh, stole is not the, quite the right word, but borrowed this slide from a close friend of mine who's the world's best uh, geologist, I think, quite clearly. And uh, he showed this at a talk just a few months ago. We just have no idea that they look exactly the same. Now, a politician doesn't like that. He thinks it's ridiculous. You don't know about an important thing like this. Tehran, which now has a population of about 12 uh, million, a bit difficult to know exactly where it uh, ends, uh, it was destroyed, 99% destroyed in the first century BC. I guarantee you nobody in Australia knew anything about that. It made a terrible impact there, but nobody here knew anything about it. Uh, 855 AD, 958 AD, 1177 AD. And in 1177, we didn't know here, but in Europe, we probably did, we, the Europeans probably did know about this two, three, four, five years later. What effect did it have? Not uh, very much, except it killed 90% of the people in Tehran. Then there was another one in 1830, same thing. When's the next one? A politician needs to know. I don't know, <laughs> much to uh, everybody's annoyance. Uh, neither the best uh, earthquake uh, seismologists uh, know. It'll happen at some time. It'll happen with no warning whatsoever. One thing I can say to the politicians, 95% of the 10, 12 million people will be killed. That's for sure. And why it's for sure is that the building codes are not at all respected here. There are building whoops, come on. There are building codes, but not uh, very uh, good ones, uh, and they're not obeyed. Builders build these high towers as quickly as they can, then they uh, go away and you'd never know what goes on. When this has an eruption, although Tehran doesn't seem uh, to be very important to uh, in Australia, it will cause a lot of problem. It'll kill 10, 12 million people, and there will be some uh, consequences. Mount Vesuvius, well, I've already said, it erupted in 79, 1944. When's the next one? It'll kill many, many Italians. There's no doubt about that. And I, if I can say this, maybe the door is shut. I once went to a meeting in uh, Italy and we talked about what are we going to do when there is clearly an eruption. And the northern Italians were very, very clear. We're not helping the southern Italians at all. They're not coming up here and taking, uh, we're not going to help them. But what will they do? Campi Fligre, which hardly anybody has heard of, uh, erupted in 1158, 1538. In those two eruptions, it was much bigger, much bigger than Vesuvius. There, there must be a bigger, much bigger magma chamber. It'll kill many more people. I could say, gee, there's 400 years near enough, 380 years difference. So 380 and 1538 makes it 
2019 with my calculation. Um, who knows? Who knows? And politicians don't like that, understandably. Katrina was, as you all know, a terrible uh, misfortune uh, in uh, uh, the southern parts of the United States and totally predicted. There's an article in Scientific American five years previously saying, because we can understand these things, this is going to happen, there's going to be a tornado like this, it's going to take roughly the following path. It was in Scientific American, that's a sort of a general journal. Did anybody do anything about it? No. And this is what happened to uh, Katrina. The politicians didn't listen to the scientists then when they could not make an exact prediction. They couldn't say, and I don't know what the date was, but April 23rd, but they could say that this was going to happen and cause an enormous amount of damage and uh, difficulties for uh, people. Smoking. I remember when I was a little boy, you know, about four years ago or something like that, uh, smoking was considered terrific. Uh, you know, I used to ask my parents, why do you have cigarettes in the lounge room? Well, when guests come, you have to, they have to have cigarettes. Why can't they bring their own damn cigarettes? My parents said, no, no, Herbert, you don't understand. You have to... But Richard Dole in about 1948 already knew that it was dangerous, knew that it threatened uh, life. Uh, it takes something like 10 years off your life. And now I can't help but uh, say, and I'll be interested in your thoughts, uh, was uh, yesterday when I left my hotel to go to have uh, a dinner, there was a very pregnant woman who asked a passerby for a, uh, a lighter and then lit a cigarette. And I thought, should I say something to her that she's sort of endangering her baby? Scientifically, I was right. I'm sure she's endangering her baby. She shouldn't smoke. Do I have the right to say anything? Well, in the end, I didn't say anything. And I, I'm still tossing about, should have I done that or uh, not? Now, this, look at this. This is the amount that alcohol costs each of three countries, uh, Australia, 15 billion due to alcohol misuse. American, uh, American economy, it's a, a drain in $249 billion. Um, and uh, this is Britain, I don't think it says it anywhere that I found, it's 21 billion pounds. So what that means is that ScoMo could say, I'll stop alcohol throughout the country. There'll be no alcohol. And that will give each one of you immediately, roughly, $1,000 more in your pocket. In addition to that, you won't have to pay to buy alcohol. So I'm going to save you $3,000. Let's say I'm making it three. And he could say that nobody would question it. $3,000, that's not bad. I mean, that's really not a bad uh, amount. On the other hand, you could say, don't be stupid, Herbert, this is, you know, this is Australia, there's no chance of stopping uh, alcohol. We Australians love alcohol, we love our beers and everything. But let's remember, smoking was done by everybody uh, 50, 60 years ago. Now, I was fascinated, I was walking down the street in uh, Brisbane and there was a big sign saying no smoking. What I found even more fascinating, I went into Dimmock's bookstore and said to the people there, could you tell me what's this mean? Where is there no smoking? And they didn't know. 
they clearly didn't make a difference to them. They just know there was no smoking. So why can't, can't this be done? Seems to me more important than uh, being able to head a football. Uh, let's make it uh, a non-alcohol uh, country. Financially, it might be a good idea. Now, I'm going to say a little bit about statistics and risks because it's, that's an important aspect. It's underlined, in a sense, what I've been uh, saying. Um, and it's difficult enough for scientists to get a grip of, and it's almost impossible for policymakers. Now, I, I really shouldn't say this, but again, I have a close friend who's a wonderful, wonderful scientist, is very famous. He's a, and statistics comes into what he does. He hasn't the slightest idea. He says total garbage. Uh, and I am always nervous. But it's an example of how even scientists don't know. For example, sharks. How dangerous is a shark? I'm terrified of swimming with sharks. When there's a sign up saying there may be some sharks here, I don't go in. I'm pleased that there are shark nets in various places where I do swim. How dangerous are they? One or two deaths a, a year? Well, now, I'm actually a very good driver. When I'm behind the car, I can drive very well and there's no risk at all. I mean, there are a 1,000 deaths a year due to car accidents in Australia compared to one or two of, in sharks. But the difference is that I drive. And, you know, the shark, I don't quite know. I drive really well. Of course, it could be that somebody who doesn't drive that well comes into me, but I don't think about uh, that. What about planes? Well, many people are really nervous about planes, flying in planes. Now, it's a pity about the two recent accidents, but in general, if you ask people who are scared of planes, why are you scared? Who knows? There's a pilot up there. I don't have control. He, he, it's totally up to him or her. Well, he or she are trained much, much better, well, than I, and with all respect to all of you, probably better than all of you. The number of accidents, well, in Qantas has never had one, uh, but the number of accidents in commercial airlines is minuscule. Uh, but people are, are nervous about it. They wait till the plane lands and say, Phew, thank God, and they applaud sometimes, and they get in the car where there are a thousand uh, accidents. And in 1970, there were something like 4,000 accidents. It's come down. This comes back to what I was saying before, because you're no longer allowed really to drink considerably and drive. Now, when I was a little boy, more than three years ago for this example, people got drunk, especially at Christmas, got into the car, drove around and killed, you know, and as I say, in 1970, there were 4,000 deaths in Australia. And there are two deaths of here, but people are much, much more scared of sharks. Now, I can't uh, resist showing this. This is a space, uh, an astronaut. And why I show this for two reasons. First is I met uh, the Swiss, uh, the only Swiss astronaut. Very, very nice uh, guy. We got on extremely well. He was with his wife. He and his wife together were just average. We talked for half an hour, the Swiss, uh, Swiss uh, astronaut and I, and his wife said after half an hour, you're not showing my husband anywhere near enough respect. 
You don't realize what a difficult job it is. You don't know how many people are being killed. The Challenger expedition and people are killed on the ground and you don't hear about it. It's really an enormously dangerous job. I, having had enough of this woman, said, you know, madam, I would think per passenger mile, it's the safest journey you could have in the whole universe. She probably liked me even less and she's now out saying there was some obnoxious Australian. But one second, per passenger mile, is that a reasonable thing to say? What about we consider the passenger mile of a shark? I mean, I've only swum maybe a few hundred yards at most before I'm in his jaws and he won't take me too far. So per passenger mile, this might be enormously dangerous. Maybe it's justifiable to be scared of these sharks if I take a different view, make a different quantity that I'm scared of. So one thing I had wanted to say, whoops, which I don't think I did, is that there are very, very few commercial uh, deaths due to plane flying. Mainly it's in private planes as we heard just recently of that famous uh, football player of a pilot who wasn't allowed to take passengers. Um, ah, now here's another thing. In uh, October 2000, uh, a train was going as fast as it could, uh, that means something like 125 miles an hour, from London up to Leeds. There was something wrong with the rails and there was a terrible crash. As you see, there was a real uh, derailing Four people died, all together actually in the restaurant section, or restaurant car. What did the politicians do? Well, it's obvious what they should do, sensible thing for a politician to do. Trains are not allowed to go that fast anymore. This was really terrible because it was going 125 miles at the time. All timetables have to be changed and no trains are allowed to go fast. I think it was in 60, 65 miles an hour. That's good, so if there's a crash, won't be that bad. Unfortunately, a consequence of going at only 60 miles an hour is the journeys took much, much longer. Because journeys took longer, many more people decided to go by car rather than go by train. And you can see clearly that there were more deaths due to people who'd come into uh, cars as a result of uh, slowing these trains down many more than the four. It increased the uh, death rate for the next few months. So, says a scientist, the clever politician would have said, this is terrible, four people died. All trains must go at 200 miles an hour. We must have them go as fast as possible so that people catch the train and won't go on the roads. And that'll make the roads uh, more empty and there'll be less accidents. Trains are much safer. Take a pretty uh, courageous politician to uh, say that. A scientist concerned with these. This is one of my favourite slides. Uh, <laughs> in fact, this was taken by a politician in Britain and is frequently shown, and he says the same thing. This is his favourite slide, but he never came from me, which annoys me, but there it goes. This is now the estimated number of deaths in the United States by people in the street, so to speak, against the actual number of deaths due to uh, different uh, problems. Of, gee, I just can't read this. I'm sorry. There it's, um, this is smallpox, vaccination, stomach cancer, strokes, heart disease, and, and so on. The thing that I find fascinating, of course, if 
the estimated deaths by the people in the street was correct, the data would all follow this line. But it doesn't. It follows a completely different uh, line. But what is fascinating to me is that it's more or less correct in order of magnitude. People know uh, that cancer is much more dangerous than uh, falling down a uh, manhole or something like that. They know that stomach cancer is less dangerous, but they don't know how to uh, do it uh, correctly. So I think that's uh, interesting. No one said, or no one's shown this graph, and that's why this politician takes it. He apparently shows it quite frequently. Um, ah, this is now, again, this is a well-known politician in Britain. He's been an MP for something like uh, just over uh, 30 years. It is well known, he says, he knows it, the doctors cannot operate during a full moon because blood clotting is not effective. Now, I bet none of you knew that. So let me tell you, don't go for an operation when it's a full moon. You might just bleed to death. He said so. He's a politician. He surely knows these things. I was the uh, chair of a uh, Royal Society uh, commission um, asked by the government to look at the use science against uh, terrorism. And we put out a uh, report, and I was fascinated. We, present, we presented uh, the uh, report, and one of the things that we said was the biggest, this was in 2004, I think, or something like that. Yeah, 2004. The, the before 7-7, but after, of course, 9-11. Um, that the biggest fear is fear itself that we really shouldn't, and politicians shouldn't, arouse people to get terrified. We presented uh, the report to, what, uh, 300, 400 people, including a number of uh, newspaper men, 30, 40 newspaper men, and they almost universally came up to me afterwards and said, don't be stupid. Well, they were kinder than that, but that's what they meant. That's what sells newspapers. We're going to say that all the time, because I particularly said the newspapers can whip up fear. It's just, uh, you know, the only thing you have uh, to fear is fear itself. But they wouldn't uh, buy that. They want to influence, and unfortunately they do, enormously. The other thing that I would find fascinating is uh, about two years later, yeah, I was rung up by a girl from a very good school, um, fee-paying school in England, and she said she was the head of the girls' school science committee. Would I come and give a talk? And I said, yeah, sure, that'd be fun. I'd enjoy doing that. I could talk about volcanoes or climate change. Blah, blah, blah. She said, no, 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 we heard you know about terrorism. We'd like you to talk about terrorism. I said, what, 17, 18-year-old girls want to know about terrorism? Yes, 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 we want to know about terrorism. Okay. So I went along. The head of science there was a PhD, and she told me what a great scientist she was. Uh, and then I gave the talk. It was about terrorism. That's what I'd been asked. But just a smidgen below the surface was saying, what you really need to be scared of, you girls, is smoking. Don't smoke, because that will take 10 years off your life. And the second, just beneath the surface, uh, message was, 
don't get on the back of that motorbike with the young man. No matter how handsome he is, it's just not worthwhile going on the back of the motorbike. But then I did tell them something about terrorism because that's what they'd asked about. Afterwards, <laughs> the teacher who told me how clever she was came to me and said, what an atrocious talk. You pretended that the chance of them getting into trouble due to terrorism is really small and there were other things that were more important. Don't you know the government is saying not if we're going to have a terrorist attack, but when? And I said to her, yeah, but you know, <laughs> your girls are going to be typically run over by buses and uh, get into trouble with smoking and things rather than getting into uh, uh, problems because there was a terrorist attack. And while I'm not uh, in any way condoning terrorist attacks, they're small. They're small compared to driving and uh, things like that. They're terrible, of course. But uh, it's important to have that understanding. I like this uh, because it's really an indication of the exact opposite. The number of scientists in the British Parliament is zero. They make these important decisions. I tried to look it up in the Australian Parliament and I couldn't find it, but I think it's pretty close to uh, zero, especially given the number of scientists who actually uh, vote for them. And in uh, New Jersey, where uh, Princeton is, uh, they have a uh, great scientist who's their representative in the lower house, and so they often have these uh, sort of uh, uh, um, um, oh, plates on their cars. My congressman is a uh, rocket scientist, but it doesn't happen uh, much. Flory who is my hero as a scientist, and I think he was Australia's best uh, scientist uh, ever, in the 1st of October 1938, got the money to look into penicillin and try to develop penicillin. He'd read a little bit about Fleming, but I, I'm not a great Fleming fan, but I'm a great uh, Flory fan. Anyhow, 1st of October 1938, he uh, started working on uh, penicillin. In February 41. The first injection was given to a man to try it out and see how it would work. If you think about it these days, I mean, and then, as you know, it saved millions of lives. If you think about it these days, can you imagine somebody starting to work on some biological matter and three years later already being able to try it out on uh, people? Politicians would never, never allow that. A politician got up, uh, and I'm sorry that I know best uh, English examples, a politician got up in uh, the British uh, House uh, when they were talking uh, uh, about this sort of thing and said, in my opinion, and I'm very concerned about this, no drug, no drug should ever be given to a human being until it's known to be 100% safe. And my son, who was an MP, got up and said... That's totally impossible. You can't be sure that something's totally safe for a human being before you try it out on a human being. And, of course, he probably lost even more of his reputation as an intelligent man. It won't be safe for everybody. For one in a thousand or something, it'll be a mistake. But So, you know, we need to look at what we did that was so uh, sensible in uh, the uh, past. Now I'm going to say just a few things to end uh, that are really much more science, but uh, politicians don't understand this at all. Um, this is a record of the Australian summer mean temperature. 
And as you all know, it's going up and up and up. It is not going up uniformly. You know, the hot times and then the next year it's cold and blah, blah, blah. That's the problem. That's, that's the way it is. But it is definitely going up and uh, up. There's no doubt about that. Here's, uh, I like this uh, slide. Uh, this is uh, the mean uh, temperature uh, over uh, sort of uh, three months, uh, relatively uh, recently. Highest on record, highest on record for something like a half uh, of Australia. Lowest on record, <clears throat> just a little, little bit here. Most of it is above average, very much above average. Australia is in real uh, problem. What do you do about it? It's all due to carbon dioxide being put into the atmosphere. I could tell you about that, but I'm sure you all uh, know it. More and more carbon dioxide, more and more uh, temperature, more and more uh, terrible times for Australia and everybody around the world. What do you do about it? Well, the uh, only uh, protests and many people say we have to curb the carbon dioxide. We have to actually put out less carbon dioxide. But how are you going to do that when the whole world economy and everything depends upon it? It's a little bit like, if I may say, if I show you for Brisbane, I don't have the slide for Brisbane, the amount of sewerage has gone up and up and up and up, I can assure you. You know, it just looks like this. It's a function of time, it's gone up and up. What if I said, excuse me, the sewerage is getting a little too big. Would you mind holding it in, sort of? Would you, would you mind uh, once every three days? Could, do you think you could do that and uh, help? You don't have to answer. <laughs> um, no, what you would say is immediately, gee, we'd better build better sewerage plants and we'd better have larger um, places there we can store it. Be scientifically sensible and I'm going to live my life as I uh, think is appropriate. Now, in my opinion, and I think it's the opinion of a lot of people, the man who knows the most about storage of carbon dioxide is an Australian, Peter Cook. He set up the Otway project, which almost everybody agrees is the best project in the world for storing uh, carbon dioxide. Um, it trained many of the engineers that go to other places. And the other thing about Peter Cook, aside from being extremely clever, he's very nice. He's a very nice guy. So you have here a guy who's clever and nice set up the Otway project all by himself. He came from England. He was head of the British Geological Society. He came about 15, 20 years ago and thought it's necessary to look into this. Is he consulted much? Has he asked much now what goes on? Not at all. Not at all. We're storing at the moment, sorry, we means the whole earth. We're storing at the moment 10 million tonnes of carbon dioxide and we're emitting 37 billion tonnes into the atmosphere. Now, there are huge possibilities, not only uh, in uh, um, storing it this way, but in doing other things. And the scientists get nowhere. I could start crying and tell you that I asked for a grant to look into this uh, problem and didn't get it for... <laughs> 
now really getting uh, uh, out of control uh, because a uh, competitor was asked to uh, referee my uh, project and he said, Huppert doesn't know enough about uh, my ideas on carb fix. So I didn't get any money. But it's crying out to be done. It's obvious. But politicians don't uh, do it. Another thing I'd just like to talk a little bit about is uh, hydraulic fracturing or fracking. And I'll tell you now, I do work on fracking. I've written a number of papers on it. It's an interesting problem. How you put fluid into rock that cracks open and releases the uh, natural gas, which you then use. My younger son is furious with me for working on fracking, saying, gee, Dad, that's a terrible thing to work on. But let me tell you the following. Fracking is definitely going to happen in America. And the reason, if only, it's going to happen is uh, that there's no possibility, there's no natural gas reserves in the Middle East. So they can get, America can get its energy from itself and doesn't have to rely on the Middle East. So it's sure to happen. And it is happening quite a bit already. Australia has huge potential fracking fields. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Australia could uh, do a lot. But there's very little. And as I say, my son, who lives in Sydney, is annoyed that his father would even think about working in this area. In France, it's banned. It's banned in a number of places. And Sarkozy, president of France, said this ban would be maintained until there was proof that shale gas exploration won't harm environment or massacre the landscape. We don't want it to massacre the landscape. It's really an important idea. Now, I'm not suggesting we frack in the middle of Brisbane or in the middle of Sydney or in the middle of Darwin, but as you all know, there's quite a lot of spare land available in Australia. Let me give you a uh, comparison. You all recognize this, I'm sorry <laughs> uh, to say this in Brisbane. Imagine when Philip came here he was meant to go to Botany Bay because Cook, it's not often said, Cook, this wonderful, wonderful surveyor, missed Sydney Harbour altogether. Somehow he just sailed by. Nobody knows why. But Philip found Botany Bay not uh, suitable, so he came into Sydney Harbour and he would have said, I'm sure, ah, isn't this beautiful? Look at this vegetation and the... Indigenous people in Manly, they're so big and terrific. I have the feeling, and Philip could well have been this smart, they're going to ruin this place. They're going to cut down the landscape. They're going to build buildings right on the shoreline, huge buildings, and this weird contraption, coat hangers over the, the harbour so that they can get from one side to the other, they're going to massacre the landscape. So the only thing he would have gone back and said to, should be a ban on civilization here because it'll massacre the landscape. What would have happened? Well, maybe I wouldn't be here and you wouldn't be here either. It's just ridiculous. This is, in some sense, my final slide. This is what I'd like uh, the average politician, gee, the prime minister and average politicians to say, I want to understand how you work. I want you to tell me what uh, I could uh, do. And the scientists should say, instead of saying, oh, look, give me money and I'll work on it,
to say, I want to know how you work. What is it that's important to you? Can we just talk uh, together? So in uh, the take-home messages, I think scientists and policymakers need to understand each other much better and understand the questions they're asking and where they're coming from and what they need. It might not be that the policymaker will answer the scientist uh, appropriately, and I've had experiences of uh, that, but there are enormous advantages to both groups, both groups to do so. Policymakers would benefit from understanding scientists better, and scientists without a doubt would understand better if they understood uh, politicians. And this final statement, I also believe, especially in Australia, this holds for scientists and industrialists. In Australia, there's very little communication between academics in university, scientific academics in university, and industries. We could talk about why that's uh, so, but it is uh, so. In Britain, it's a little better, but not much better. In America, it's much, much better. There are very close links between uh, a number of really super-duper universities and uh, uh, American uh, industries, and they both benefit. The scientist learns about what might be interesting, and the industrialist learns about what to uh, do. So that, I think, is all I have to say. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.